Ramachay first requests us to place our minds in the noble disposition of a bodhicitta, um, intending so that we intend to study Dharma in order to establish each and every sentient beings throughout the vast limits of space in utterly pure, most perfect and precious enlightenment. And uh, before we carry on, I'd like to make two announcements. Uh, once uh, before I forget this afternoon there isn't a teaching session because it's uh, 29th day and there's long Mahakala prayers and I think uh, Rinpoche is coming to the prayers so there's only this this morning session um, anyway there's not a session this afternoon uh, the second thing is a correction to yesterday afternoon's teaching and uh, I made a mistake there uh, I'm very sorry and it's not too big. But in the thing about the uh, Pratimoksha vow that has all the characteristics, we can say an authentic Pratimoksha vow, I said it needed to be supported by a compassionate understanding of the nature of samsara and <coughs> renunciation. I shouldn't have put the stress on compassion because it makes confusion between the Hinayana and the Mahayana ways. And... Um, where all of the stress should be is on renunciation. The motivation should be renunciation of samsara. When there's a renunciation of samsara, then it's an authentic uh, vow. Sorry, thank you. So. Uh, I spoiled his train of thought. We don't know what to do now. Takatong, Aronzo, Susu Tabi Dombahi Vika Layon, Tombo, 
Sambanjiapu Gi Sisaksina he doesn't understand English, but he's very perceptive. So he's starting by saying, we saw yesterday that in order to have a properly um, established um, Pratimoksha vow, then it needs to be supported by a motivation of total renunciation. And this gives us a very good example of how um, the state of mind that one's in is actually what determines the overall nature of what we're doing. So there in that case, it's when uh, even though one does, one follows all the di- discipline of Pratimosha, if this basic renunciation of samsara, this disgust and turning away from samsara, isn't there, we can't call it Pratimoksha. And in the same way in the Mahayana teachings, um, if the mind isn't right, if the motivation or the mentality which underpins whatever we're doing is not correct, then we can't call it Mahayana. So in this case, at the beginning of the talk, then Rinpoche says, uh, we are now going to study Dharma with the intention of bringing all sentient beings, our mothers, throughout the vast limits of space to the state of utterly pure, totally perfect, and most precious uh, enlightenment. And that should, that should be the way that we uh, enter into Dharma teachings or practice, uh, that is to say, and then afterwards that should be the underlying uh, feeling in our minds, so that when we are, for instance, just now studying the Dharma teachings, then that's how it should be. Our mind should be out there in loving care for all sentient beings, without any limit, actually, through wherever there's space there are beings, and it's for their benefit that we are listening to these teachings and trying to understand them and to implement them. If it's like that, then as we sit here, we're practicing Mahayana. If it's not like that, and we're sitting here studying um, out of intellectual curiosity for our own benefit, it's not bad, it's still a good thing, but we cannot call it Mahayana. We can't call it Bodhisattva in practice. 
For instance, the Mahamudra teachings, which are part of this course, we probably already know that the Mahamudra teachings are, of all of the Dharma teachings, they're the very finest Mahamudra practice of meditation, of all meditation practices. It is the very, very top. It's the, it's, it's the ultimate. Mahamudra teachings comes from the, is totally based on the third turning of the wheel of Buddha Dharma. And of the three turnings, that is the most sublime, it's the ultimate of teachings. We know that the teaching is the highest, but if we are following those teachings, studying them, practicing them for our own benefit, just for our own welfare, then although that's the highest of the highest of views and practice, actually our own practice and our own attitude is that of the shravakas, is that of the basic level of Buddhism, because it's, the motivation is, is self-interest. And, um, of course, it's, it's something, it's good. And Rinpoche explained yesterday that if you don't have the first floor of a building, then you can't have the second floor and the third floor. It's, we can't say it's a bad thing, but we should understand that this um, state of mind with which we are entering into something, with which we are doing something, is really what determines its, its quality and its level. Nepanda 
As far as the um, as far as the actual practitioner is concerned, <coughs> that means us, then we need to um, be very to the point and very realistic about what our practice is achieving. And for this, we shouldn't be looking at the number of years we've been practicing. We shouldn't be looking at the teachings we've received. We shouldn't be looking at the lamas. Uh, in whose presence we've received blessings and teachings and so on. Um, what we need to ask is, what we need to look at, is our own mind. doesn't matter if we've been practicing for 20 years, 30 years, if we've received teachings on Mahamudra, on Sogchen, if um, how long we've been doing it, which great masters we did it with. What we should be looking at is this. Is my desire and attachment getting less? Is my anger getting less? Is my confusion and ignorance getting less? Are the defilements diminishing? That's what we should be looking at. We should be measuring our dharma not in terms of years, not in terms of teachings and teachers, but in terms of the uh, changes of our own mind. And it's as simple as that. If our defilements and ego clinging are diminishing, then the Dharma is, we're practicing Dharma properly. If not, the rest doesn't matter. Who you've been with, what teachings you've taken, however profound or special, makes no difference. So there we can take an example of somebody who's uh, sick and who goes to hospital. Now, it doesn't matter if they stay one day, two, one week, one month in the hospital, if they receive injections, drips, whatever treatment it is, if in the end they're getting worse and worse and worse, well, it doesn't matter. They're getting worse and worse and worse. That's the main thing. で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、で、
defilements and poisons, our passions, and it's that also which nurtures and increases our happiness by the very fact of taking away the obstacles and the suffering and the confusion in our mind. Dhamma is the remedy, and of all the different sorts of dhamma, then Mahamudra practice is the finest remedy of them all. It really is the very best. And through it, we understand that these problems that we're tackling, our anger and passion and so on, ego clinging, um, and also that the happiness that we are seeking, that they have no solid foundation. They are not real entities in themselves. They all, as we saw yesterday, as Rimte explained yesterday, they are all facets of the mind. They are the activity, the manifestation, the radiance of the mind. And by that very fact, once we understand the mind and how it makes happiness and suffering, then we have uh, the method for changing it. And of all the methods, Mahamudra is really the finest and most uh, efficient and sophisticated で、ダウダサジェチャンボトリサボチレムディ。で、え、モテレドモトロバチト。ニョンレンセイヨレドデバンジョンゴジ。ドンハトンチメロジチ。リサボチマレ。ペナマロンソソンノチトナ。モトン
step by step until at the end you go to university. It's not possible at the beginning for a child that's done one year of study to go and do PhD type research. It's just not possible. There's no equipment, there's none of the basis, not even after two years or three years. This is something that builds up, gradually you learn to read and write, to enter into the details of things, to take that more deeply, more finely. And then, after 15 years of study, then on all that basis, then you can have the sort of mind and capacities for doing uh, doctorate-type research. And then, once that's been done, then, after all of those years of development, then you're equipped to earn a living, to make your money, to support yourself for the rest of the life. The life. In regular existence, we're willing to go through all of that laborious education for all of those years because that's what enables us to survive. Without that, you're pretty stuck. And so now that's just for ordinary life. Here we're not looking at one life or two lives. We're looking at something for all of our future lives. We're looking at something that is going to conquer all of those deep-rooted problems, clinging to self and so on. We're looking at something which is going to engender the finest of all happiness. This is not an easy task. This is a long term. This is a difficult task. But then... If we're prepared to undergo 15 years of laborious, boring education just in order to survive and stay alive without any guarantee that it's going to work, that you're going to get a job, that you're going to actually make it, then we should be prepared for the hardship of working with the mind, which is the necessity of Mahamudra practice. <laughs> Dunga Shajimomena, だ、だ、だ、だ、だ、だ、だ、だ、だ、だ、だ、だ、だ、だ、だ、だ、だ、だ、だ、だ、だ、だ、だ、だ、だ、だ、だ、だ、だ、だ、だ、だ、だ、だ
we've understood that Mahamudra is the finest of all ways to eliminate suffering and to achieve happiness, then, um, and in the light of what Rinpoche just said about what we're prepared to do in ordinary life, then uh, we should uh, be motivated to do whatever we can to make it a reality, to practice it as much as possible and as well as possible. As far as um, the practice of Mahamudra goes, then is presented um, in three main steps, preparation, actual practice, and what follows on from that. And uh, this is the way the text is presented, it's the way that practice works, and it's really the same for most things in life. We need to prepare, then we need to actually do something, and then on the basis of what's been done, there are certain consequences that follow on from that. And if we take the example of building a house, then first we need to plan it, to design it, and and not just plan the house itself, but plan the building work and how it's going to be done. However well the planning's done, then that well the building work will be done, and the actual building will be a success. It will be useful or not so useful. And so there's the planning. The planning's gone well, then the actual building happens and the house is there and uh, then once the house is there then it can be lived in. So these three steps of preparing, actually doing and then working with the consequences or the, the conclusion of that is a very natural thing and it applies in particular to Mahamudra. However well the preparation is done then that well the actual practice will succeed. ตาเดลานอฮอนรุนดาวยินายุงตาอ่าซันดาวยอรินดีโนลานะตะโมกฮอนดูตะโมมายปิฮอนดูเจบัร์จิงฮอนดูเซกฮอนดูลามันดาบ
preparation or foundation. Common, uncommon, particular. There are those three. And again, we can use an everyday example uh, to demonstrate that. If we go back to this example of building a house, then the general preparation would be, well, you need to get your plot of land, you need to get the money or to get the loan, you need to establish the general circumstances that make the whole thing uh, possible. Then, uh, once you've got uh, the money, a piece of land and so on, then what would correspond to the uncommon foundations are that you need to get the workers and um, the equipment, the materials, especially for that house. And so then, uh, whatever it's being built of, marble or so on, you need to get what you need to build that house. It might not be the same as what the neighbour needs to build his house. But then... The third type of particular foundation or preparation is you need some experts. So you might need someone who's a skilled metal worker, for instance, who can do the wrought iron work. Or you might need somebody who is a specialist for um, pick your trade. But your own house might have very special features and there you need someone who's particularly skilled in that. Not just any building worker or your regular workers can do it. So in Mahamudra we have the common foundation, uncommon foundations, and very special foundations. Sesamai so in uh, this analogy of building a house then first we have to get the money together have to um, have the wealth to do it and in Mahamudra we need to practice the common foundations common because they're common to all of Buddhism they're shared with all other Buddhism we need this wealth of um, Attitude, whereby we understand just how precious an opportunity our precious human existence is, how rare, um, how so many factors come together within that to help us. Also, we need to understand that this precious human existence is impermanent. We are mortal, and to understand the nature of change, and in particular, our own uh, death and mortality. We need to know that there isn't just this life, that there are future lives, and that those future lives hinge upon what we do now. If we practice what is good, what is wholesome and virtuous now, then the future life will be full of positive circumstances. If we practice what is harmful now, then the future life will be full of pain and difficulties. Then, so we need to know about karma, 
in this life. And then fourthly, we need to know just what is in store for beings, for ourselves, in the various states of existence. We need to understand very fully the nature of each type of existence and the the suffering that it carries. These contemplations which change the mind are the common currency of all Buddha Dharma. ตาทมมายิบาเดตาทมมายิบาเดดิลานะนะตานุมบาสุจีปีนูนิเชระเชวะเรเปนะญาติุนระโวดงตาทมมายิบาเดโวชอดิโวปะเรญาติุนระโว
on that basis. Then we do the Vajrasattva practice of purification, which is very specific to Mahayana, uh, Vajrayana practice. We do the mandala offering. We do the whole thing on the basis of bodhicitta. This is not something that's shared with all Buddhists. This is specific to Mahayana, specific to our lineage. So this is, if we go back to our analogy of building a house, um, then given the sort of house that we want to build, these are the sort of things, um, the preparation work uh, that you can't do without. Yeah, that you can't do without. So depending on the sort of house you've got, if you didn't do it, you couldn't build that sort of a house. Sorry, it's a couple of negatives, but uh, it's what you need to do in order to do it. And if you didn't do it, you couldn't do it. ตาเจ็บจังหวะรู้ตัวเสียจิตตาอ่าดีโนละอ่าเทพเชมบูเสียรอตาชอดเจ็บจังหวะเนี่ยเสียงแค่ละตาเดิมเนี่ยชอดเ
And although the foundations are all so important, um, then uh, but there's something you've had teachings on. But if we focus on this third, this very particular set of foundations, which may not, not be so familiar, then it consists of four conditions, which are called causal condition, master condition, focus condition, and immediate condition. And we can sum all of those up in one of them, which is called the master condition, which means that we absolutely have to have, for Mahamudra, a truly qualified lineage guru. ラムセニジパデンソンラムセニナジパドデンバジャワドジンチョンタジャワドジンチョンジナタソンジキャチャタバリノダソンジラタチュコロンクトキスモボセジョリテイニナロンクコノンバテンバドタソンドナナドジン
What does it mean, a guru uh, who is truly endowed with the, uh, uh, I can't remember the words I said before, properly qualified guru? Truly qualified lineage guru. Yeah, anyway, what does that mean, truly qualified lineage guru? Uh, And Naropa tells us that truly qualified means possesses the lineage transmission. Possesses the lineage transmission from Buddha Vajradhara. Possesses the lineage transmission from Buddha Vajradhara. Buddha Vajradhara is uh, the way we talk in our lineage about the Buddha, Buddha mind, Buddha. It's the Sambhogakaya aspect of the Buddha. Our historical Buddha, Shakyamuni, was a Nimanakaya aspect of the Buddha, Buddha mind. Um, there's absolutely no difference between them. It's a question of manifestation, time and place. And so these teachings of Mahamudra were given by the Sambhogakaya aspect, Buddha Vajradhara, in the first place. And this transmission is not like the transmission of a loom where somebody just says it, another person gets it, they've got it, they can tell it to somebody else. That's a mechanical thing. This is so different. This is uh, a transmission of achievement, and it needs to be perfect, and it needs to be unbroken. So this means that uh, what happens is that the original masters who had this, from Sambhogakaya Buddha, Vajradhara, They taught it to their disciples. They taught all of the methods for attaining it. They gave them all of the oral instruction, the personal instruction, the profound heart-to-heart, person-to-person advice. On the basis of that, the person practiced the method. On the basis of that, the bond between master and disciple was never spoiled. The samaya was always perfect. And then the disciple achieved Realization and nurtured that realization until it was the same as the master's realization. This is what is meant by transmission. There is absolutely no mistake about it. The master and the student end up identical, and the student has acquired what the original Buddha, Vajradhara, transmitted. This goes from generation to generation. Now, There are many wonderful teachers. There are many teachers who can talk about Mahamudra. But those who actually possess this living transmission of mastery, those who have what Naropa called, who have the lineage from Buddha Vajradhara, are few and far between. There are many masters who teach, but of those those who really have this inner transmission, are few. And... um, so Rimte is saying, if a teacher, if they, a teacher was to say, "I have the lineage transmission," it means not that they've studied, 
not that they've understood the words, not that they received the empowerments, not that they just received the technical transmission, but that they received the instruction, the method, the oral advice, they practiced, they kept their samaya perfect, and on the basis of that, all of that, their realization became the same as their own authentic guru's realization, and they received the totality of the transmission, just as Buddha Vajradhara gave it in the first place. Somebody who's done that can say, I hold the lineage, I hold the transmission. And those who can say that are few, because it's not a question of study, it's not a question of anything except practice of meditation until the result is fully manifest. Such a teacher, by the very fact of what they carry within them, will know how to nurture experience and realization in their disciples. They'll have the wisdom that knows uh, to tell them what to do, when to do, how to do it. And uh, they won't just be passing on instructions that they got and then they're passed on and then just hope that the student makes the best of it. It's not like that. They'll have the wisdom and the insight to nurture that person. So it's a very um, true and real thing. The person is growing in the understanding and experience. The experiences will happen. The master can check them, can nurture them. And through those experiences, then the wisdom of realization uh, will emerge. Now we've got a 40-second break to change the CD. Okay, 
forgot to say before, Rinpoche said that in his opinion, then this uh, one point from those four particular preliminaries, the master condition it's called, where one needs a truly qualified lineage guru, he says this in a way sums up all of the foundation practices to his mind. That's what it all boils down to, finding and working with a true guru. So then that lineage guru can um, properly guide and nurture the experience in the uh, student. And um, it says in one of the scriptures, the Gandavyuha scripture, a sutra, that um, it is not through study alone that the excellent result is attained. Something like that. It's not through study alone that the excellent result is attained. One needs to practice. And so the guidance of the teacher is not a guidance in all of the wealth of scriptures and ideas it is a guidance in practice, in meditation mm-hmm. There's another sutra which is called the Ushnicha Sutra or the Head Mound um, Sutra. And there, in there it says that um, better than many cosmic eons of uh, study and contemplation is one day of actual samadhi, actual meditation, absorption. There's profound difference in time. It says many kalpas, many cosmic eons of study and reflection, they are surpassed by simply one day of um, true absorption. And the reason for this is that all of the intellectual work of study and reflection is um, feeble in overcoming the mind's poisons defilements and ego clinging so on whereas one day of profound absorption is effective in removing those things That's very true, but then again, uh, you need to know how to meditate. You need to have some information first so that the meditation goes the right way. Otherwise, no benefit. 
Otherwise, you can plonk yourself down and do some Vajrayana meditation and uh, no benefit. Difficult, isn't it? ตาเกงเตลานอตาสุงจีจองเตนีกอดูกุงดูกุงปานินเรนอนี่ตากะริสุงเลจินาตานี่เนี่ยทึนอนอดูเตนี่ชงเชเซมบานอนอดูเตย
As for the first one, the cause which gives rise to shamatha, then this is what we're studying in the other aspect of this course. It's all based in the way that we support or discipline our mind through commitment, through vows. And as we've seen, this um, training of the mind, and uh, this harnessing of the mind, works in three areas, harnessing the body, harnessing the speech, harnessing the mind. As for the second aspect, the um, learning and the reflection that gives rise to deep insight, then in fact there are two ways traditionally of developing such learning and reflection. The first way takes place through study and uh, traditionally in the monasteries and so forth there will be the Shedra, the monastic college, and there um, there will be study of uh, all the various aspects of the Buddha's um, teaching, the various, it's called the Pitaka, the various um, uh, Hinayana teachings, the Mahayana teachings, the different philosophical traditions, how they present them, um, the main points of Buddha Dharma concerning the sutras, concerning the tantras. So there's a study program of the Shedra, and through that there is a very thorough training, study and reflection, that then becomes the basis for the Vipassana, so that when you meditate on the basis of everything you've learned, there's the insight. The other way is based on the Lama's personal, the Guru's personal instructions. And there, one's wisdom comes from person to person, heart to heart advice. It's by taking that advice to heart, reflecting upon it, that one gains the wisdom about mind itself in particular, which becomes the basis for profound insight into the mind. So it's not teachings from the Lama about all different sorts of things. It's teachings very specifically about your own mind and the way it works and wisdom comes on that basis. In Mahamudra, both of these are used, but the main emphasis is on the second one, on taking to heart the Guru's instructions and using that as the basis for the insight that comes in the practice. Mm-hmm. 
those things we just studied are the mm, basis from which arise uh, shamatha and vipassana. What are they, shamatha and vipassana? First, let's look at shamatha, this, uh, however you like to call it, calm abiding, peaceful stability of the mind. We can define it as the mind which is settled one-pointedly. The mind which is settled one-pointedly. So it needs to settle, it needs to be stable and calm, and it needs to be focused, settled one-pointedly. As far as Vipassana is concerned, deep insight, then this concerns that settled, focused mind. Once it is focused and settled, then how is that mind? What is the nature of that mind? It's insight into the nature of mind and the very way the mind is. Mm-hmm. Tendi In terms of practice, then, which comes first of shamatha and vipassana? Well, it depends. It depends on the capacity of the, what should we call it, the disciple, the person. Those exceptional beings who are what are called the very best, they might not need to do, well, the very, very best, any shamatha first, they can go straight to the vipassana, deep insight, or they might need to do very little shamatha, very little peaceful stability meditation because on account of all of their past history, on account of the natural sparkling openness and wisdom of their minds, then the nature of mind can be pointed out 
by a truly qualified guru, and then on that basis they can nurture that deep insight. So there would be no need, no point, putting that person through the labors of shamatha first, if there is such a person. Such a person is exceedingly rare. So for the most part of people, we start with shamatha, because the great master Shantideva says this. He says, uh, Vipassana, which is well endowed with shamatha, has the power to overcome every defilement. Vipassana, which is well endowed with shamatha, has the power to overcome every defilement. So we start with shamatha, we build up a very peaceful, stable mind, and that becomes the basis for uh, deep insight into the mind. When it comes to the actual practice of meditation, so the actual practice of shamatha, which is probably the case for uh, all of us, um, then meditation involves both body and mind. And uh, one needs to know what to do with the body and what to do with the mind. And these two are not totally separate. Body and mind are indeed very connected. Mm-hmm. And so what is the connection? The connection is that when the body is um, well set in meditation, when it's comfortably positioned, then the mind will naturally feel um, at ease. It will be easier to work with the mind. It will be easier to cultivate uh, peaceful stability within the mind. If the body is um, uncomfortable, poorly positioned, then this makes the mind uh, disturbed and uncomfortable. As far as um, putting the body into an ideal posture is concerned, an ideal position, ideal posture, then most famous of all in these teachings is what is called the seven-point posture of Vairochana. Vairochana is the name of one of the five main uh, Buddhas, of the five Buddha families. And um, so when we portray Vairochana, then uh, 
and we're looking around, can't see one just in this shrine room here, but um, then Vairochana has these seven points of posture. So, seven points. Uh, you might not like the first one. <laughs> the uh, legs should be in the Vajra posture. <laughs> uh, for most people who grew up sitting on chairs, uh, difficult. difficult. <laughs> ตบกะจอติโตเตติสินะกากาสะลาดูจิจะทุนจาตะนิโอมานาติสินะยงกะจอตินดูเออตะติเสเฉลินะกอนโรจิโอบาเรติเกวะจิโตตะกะเลกะ
One needs to experiment with this to find what is actually ideal for oneself as far as the Vajra postures is concerned. Um, many texts say it can be helpful to have the right height of support under your bottom. So you need to find uh, the right height of cushion or whatever you put there so that uh, with the right height then you feel that the legs and everything and your back sits comfortably. Sometimes, depending how and where you're sitting, um, also a little bit of support behind the back can help. These are perfectly admissible, and in fact they're encouraged so that we find uh, the right weight for ourselves to sit. Rinpoche says he himself got used to sitting in the Vajra posture on a flat floor, and actually if he puts some support under his bottom, he gets pain after a while. It's not comfortable for him. Each person needs to find... um, the right uh, the so second point after the uh, posture of the legs is that of the hands the hands are placed one upon another in what's called the meditation posture the palms of the hands themselves sit four fingers width below the navel and um, then the thumbs are joined as you just saw Rinpoche joining the thumbs third point is to um, pull back and up the shoulders somewhat and then this means that with the hands in the meditation posture and the shoulders pulled back somewhat then there is a gap between the arm and the side of the body it's enough gap for a bit of wind to pass through So then the next point, uh, point four, isn't it? Fourth point is uh, the spine. The spine should be spread. The spine should be straight, which means the the vertebra should be straight. And um, it's a bit of a shame as a translation because Rinpoche was showing it as he was talking. 
<laughs> so uh, our, our attention needs to be actually with the spine itself. We need to be thinking of a posture which makes our spinal column as straight as it can be, um, which doesn't mean... Uh, Rumsa was leaning back, exaggerating a leaning back. He says this actually bends the spine. We need to find a position of the head and the neck and so on that means the spine is um, as straight as it can be. Mm-hmm. Then the, um, if in the Tibetan it's expressed in terms of the throat, the throat is covered up a bit, or we can say the chin is tucked in a little bit. The chin doesn't jut out, it's tucked in a little bit over the throat. So then, uh, as far as the tongue and the teeth and what's happening in the mouth uh, are concerned, then the tongue um, doesn't hang loose. It touches the upper palate, or it's settled on the upper palate, and the teeth are slightly apart. Uh, They're not clenched, they're not very apart, they're just um, slightly apart with the tongue parked on the palate above them. As far as the gaze is concerned, then the gaze is settled um, in space, in indefinite space, um, some four fingers' width in front of the tip of the nose. So there's nothing there to look at, it's just the place where the gaze is mm, parked. So a little more than four fingers width in front of the nose. Mm-hmm. Those are the seven points of posture. Mm-hmm. Mitsu Onya Mm-hmm. 
Tindilan, Midbe Kachi Wuri. Of those um, seven points, um, then perhaps the most important is the Gayas, uh, if we look on a longer term. Um, and many people, when they meditate, meditate with their eyes closed. It's not good. Um, it's not bad, but it's not good. And uh, Rinpoche said he never saw a Mahayana or a Vajrayana instruction text that said close the eyes. They always talk about the eyes being opened. And then in particular, when it comes to the Vajrayana teachings, and especially in the Tibetan traditions, the teachings of the uh, Mahasandhi or Dzogchen, then in there, um, there are many instructions about using the gaze, using the eyes um, to great advantage. The reason for this is that in the energy channels of the body, the eyes are the end point of what are called the two um, pranja, or wisdom channels. And by keeping the eyes shut, one is radically diminishing the possibility of using the energy of those channels to realize the wisdom that transcends self, the wisdom of non-ego. And uh, in the uh, Mahasandhi teachings, then uh, there are many special instructions for using the gaze, where there's a a Dhammakaya gaze, Sambhogakaya gaze, Nirmanakaya gaze. All of these um, are very, very uh, advantageous. So although sometimes for a very experienced practitioner or from time to time for anybody, although it's, it's, it's not a sin to close the eyes, although it can be okay, uh, for the actual meditation training, working with the eyes open is very important. Actually, how to use the gaze is important. Uh, first, not a lot of blinking. It doesn't mean not blinking, but Rimche was actually uh, fluttering his eyelash, his what they called eyelids, eyelids very quickly and saying not like that. Uh, so. Uh, not sort of a stroboscopic blinking when you meditate, uh, and also not with the eyes wandering around the room, looking at this, looking at that, settling here, settling there. On the contrary, the gaze should be calmly settled. It shouldn't be a, not a tight focus, just calmly settled on its object. When the gaze wanders, this is very injurious development 
ဟောင်ရာတနိဒိုက်ယောနာယုံဂွန်လာနောက်ပန်တာကိုတန်တိယုံဟောင်ရှေတော့ယင်ကျင်မှာတွေ့ဒီမဲ့အာကြီးဖ
very natural. Uh, it shouldn't be something that makes a whistling noise as, you know, or a sound as it comes in and out. There should be this, what can we say, gentle, natural breath. This is an eighth feature, not in the traditional seven points, but through the Guru's oral instructions. Also, there's another thing uh, which uh, Rumsi says, in my opinion, it's really quite important, is that don't, uh, uh, what's the word? It's not overdressed, that sounds wrong. Not to wear too many clothes when you meditate. Uh, because if you're too well wrapped up, you're too warm, then this uh, won't help the meditation. To be more lightly dressed than heavily dressed, he said, 100% one can say that's a better thing. Of course, not to the point where you risk catching a cold or getting sick, or where it's, you're so freezing it's taking your mind off the meditation or whatever. Not to that point, not to the point where it's uh, overdone. But uh, very definitely, if one is, um, all things considered, lightly dressed for the occasion of meditation, then this is very helpful for the practice. <laughs> Rumte is saying when he was about 19 or 20 years old, he was in retreat. And uh, in that retreat, they had rather long hours. They were up at 3 in the morning, and uh, their day finished around 11 o'clock in the evening. And uh, they had to leave their door open. And there was one Lama whose job it was to go around and to look to make sure that everyone was um, practicing. And said uh, one evening um, he'd fallen asleep. And uh, so he was in his meditation box, which was quite small, and he'd dozed off. And the Lama 
who looked through the door and who saw that he was uh, sleeping when he should have been meditating, came in with, with a stick of incense and he put the incense in, in his mouth as he was sleeping and he woke up with a start. <laughs> He said he used to have an unusual white hair that grew just on the bottom lip. That got burnt. He's not had it since. So in today's teaching on uh, from the pointing out the Dharmakaya, we have um, very, very briefly brushed upon the earlier chapters um, and not done the ones concerning the foundations. As far as settling the body and settling the mind is concerned, we've looked a little bit at settling the body, and tomorrow we come on to uh, settling the mind. And this leaves us with a few uh, minutes for questions, if you have any questions. Well, they need to be held four fingers below the navel, but then if you're in the Vajra posture with the feet up like that, then the feet are almost up to that level anyway. It's different when we sit in other sort of cross-legged postures. Tatan <laughs> Tatatungo, <laughs> 
ตีกว่าจะตาพาตายกว่าตีละเนาะสอยกว่าตักมาสอละกะเรชาเดียวน่ะตินจีจีละตีปานหอมหอละตารงกาขี้ได้พูดสุตะลายุงอุปภาพม
Again, Rinpoche is uh, making this distinction between settling the gaze, settling the gaze, and actually using visual consciousness. And they're very different because when there's visual consciousness, then we're actually using the gaze to look at something. We place our mind's attention through the eyes and through the gaze, and we're actually looking at something. When we do that, that's quite straining for the eyes. So when uh, we do have a meditation or any sort of thing where we actually are looking intently at something, then quite quickly the eyes start to water, the eyes start to hurt, you can get hallucinations, things start to shimmer or to wobble. That's when the visual consciousness is constantly set with the gaze. So here, the visual consciousness isn't with the gaze. Uh, we don't, we're not involved with visual consciousness. So that's the gaze, the eye power is simply parked there. And our mind's attention is doing some other sort of work. And when, that's, when we learn how to do that, then we find it's not at all tiring for the eyes. You can sit for a long time and then you're not getting hallucinations, wobbles, um, sore eyes, tears, none of that comes because we don't have the stress of visual consciousness joined with um, the gaze. And uh, it's in some meditations we do use the gaze and visual consciousness combined, in which case we have advice about how not to look for too long so that the eyes don't get strained. And, um, and then also in everyday work, we go all day long using our eyes, looking at things, but because we are not powerfully focused through visual consciousness all the time, then um, our eyes are not watering or hallucinating all day long. So there's a big difference between parking the gaze and actually looking. Lapa <laughs> Really, <laughs> Narrows <laughs> Narrows, 
There's, there's a difference between the two postures um, because what happens is that each thing, I think that's the best way to translate it, it's, it's, it's each dharma, it says, but it means each thing, each point in dharma teachings has its own particular qualities and benefits. So in this seven-point posture, the hands, which are four fingers width below the navel, are particularly effective in um, reducing thoughts of anger, aggression, frustration, all of those things. And, you know, we have the various mind poisons. We have uh, desire, anger, jealousy, pride, uh, confusion. And these different points of posture help reduce. Now, we can't say you put your hands there, you have no more anger and aggression. That would be wonderful. But what it means is, for instance, if if you put water in this cup that's in front of Rinpoche, then uh, the water's there in the cup. But gradually it evaporates, bit by bit, through being in the cup. Um, so it doesn't evaporate in a few seconds. It takes time. Gradually it comes down. So what we find is that in this posture, and Rinpoche says this, this is uh, what the Buddha taught. You know, This is the, how the Buddha taught, that that particular point of posture is very helpful in the long term in reducing the aggressivity, the frustration and anger in the mind. So that's why we do that. And he never saw something that said the same quality for the hands resting on the knees. So he said it's not just a question of comfort when we meditate. He said if, if it's just a question of comfort, well, you can just lean back or, or why not even lie down? Why not even uh, sleep You know, while we're at it if we want to be comfortable. It's not a question of how we're comfortable. It's a question of a long-term work to reduce the mind poisons. And then Rinpoche said also yeah, that, um, for instance, with these things of posture, when the posture is, what would you say, mm, tightened up a bit, you, know, when you sit up a bit straighter and pull yourself up, then it's much harder to fall asleep than if you're gradually sort of slumping down and then the more you slump the easier it is to get sleepy and dozy but when you're pulled up in a straight posture that keeps the mind awake uh, in both cases body and mind the, the, the mind is resting with the body straightened up or slumped mind and body are together but then the mind's different depending on what the body does The Dodgy Chutron Kiko, Remuchena, Dicky Johnson, the 
Penalupola, G. Tempo, Chepa, Re, Demato, Penyon Shenda. Yori, Yes, there are there are various benefits. It's not simply a case of making a stable basis for the, the body. And um, one of the main benefits is that the masters of old said that that uh, Vajra posture is something which is very beneficial in the long term in reducing uh, uh, thoughts, thoughts, mental activity related to jealousy. And um, so uh, when we are training in meditation and in shamatha, we don't want the mind to wander off in feelings or thoughts of jealousy. We don't want it to wander off in feelings of anger and frustration. We don't want it to, to wander off into desire and longing for this and that. So each of these points of posture is very helpful in keeping the mind with its uh, focus. ヘドンテムニョモパメレレルシジマレメレトマレトティトパヨラノトノトムシシコロンケシェテテレペトヨレラガレデメオヨペジャジゴワチャドオドジチチチデデナチョドテニョモパカツワダネソンジンダゴチ
in those areas. Um, Doje Chutrung in Honada Lapashan, the Yeyungi Jepa Gachum Porta Vipena, Cup Capla, Dindrabuche, Cup Capla, Chutrung, Dindrabuche. Oh, ta, okay. Oh, you listen to Coron Cherry, what you do, Yoho Yala, Yetina, Coron Simon, the two, the Chatwater, the Sword, Lapayota, then the little Coron. Mano pa mantra pa chi sia gadu ti la sia gadu le tong bo pa la na pa tong du sia gadu ti ni le tong bo ma yin pa ta gwa nyo la ya po chi sia du yin na na ko ni ri na yo gwa ja de ne chi ma ri ya pa ta sa le tu pa la ja di na ko rong ni tu pa je hi yo chi ma ri sen ra ho ya ti ri da wo re ma tu le tong bo pa la na ko rong de li sen de li sia chu ma du mu ni de li sia gadu ko rong la yeah it's important uh, because that's the that's the way it's been taught, and then especially for beginners, he says, uh, taking a lot of pains or a lot of um, care to get everything just right, just as it's been traditionally taught, that the right hand's on the left, the thumbs are joined like this, this is just like that. He says it's uh, very important. So then I asked the question, well, what if you're not a beginner? And then he said, well, if you're not a beginner, maybe you don't need a posture at all. So it was... เป็นอาจารย์ลาบาปาลุจอนิลันเนี่ยดูทรงเอ่อตรัสตัวได้ <laughs> <laughs> He slept for 12 years. Uh, I mean, he was just sprawled out sleeping for 12 years. But by the end of it, he got the um, siddhis. So he wasn't a beginner. (laughs) (laughs) If you're that sort of a person, you're not a beginner. (laughs) Uh, So then, if we're not beginners, then we can just sleep for 12 years. Just asleep or painful? Well, it doesn't hurt, but yeah, it doesn't really hurt. Mm-hmm. Oh, the na lay down for yin in the yin the yang low gong lo drukchuking anda. 
It's beneficial to have the cross leg posture. And so if, if you want the benefits, and if you want the benefits of that posture as a basis for doing the other steps of the practice, which all the texts say it is very beneficial, then it's maybe worth um, persisting with it. But then that doesn't mean that from day one you have to do uh, the complete posture perfectly. Uh, it means that you do whatever you can and you try and gradually build it up and you use whatever help you can to make that uh, work better. Um, he didn't say it, but I imagine um, massage or movements or whatever it is to help it along. And he said it's like uh, in the vows text that I don't know if we did it yesterday or it comes next, but um, it says, you know, at the beginning you can take one precept and then if you find you can keep that, you can take a second precept and a third precept and gradually you build up until you have the whole thing and then that's very beneficial. So he says, like this, if one isn't used to the posture and it's difficult at first, it doesn't mean then we say, oh, I can't do posture. It means we try, we do whatever we can and whatever we can manage, there's that much benefit. And it, it says in so many texts, it does say the body really helps the mind. So it, that's why we, it's worth persisting in Dashem, Alus, Osai, Trichon, Yodos, 